Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our program again. We are in a study of the book of Jeremiah. We call the program The Expectations of Jeremiah. We're looking at all of his prophecies, and we are deep into the book. In fact, we are coming to the final chapters of the book. And so if you would, turn with me to chapter 46. Let me do just highlight a quick review in the most recent chapters that we went through, in the most recent episodes. The actual day had come for uh, the Babylonians to come and truly take captive uh, all of the leaders and the king of Israel and was bringing in its demise. And Gedaliah was this man who was appointed. He was a, a calm man, a peaceful man. He was appointed as governor and told that the, the poor could come back and stay in the land, that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't going to harm them. And there was a fellow by the name of Ishmael that was a, a Jew. He was part of the royal court. He was in Moab, which is in Jordan, and he wanted to maintain the fight uh, with Babylon. He did not want to uh, do that, and so he came and, and assassinated um, his fellow Jewish brother, Gedaliah, and, and to cause more turmoil so that the people would be afraid of Nebuchadnezzar coming and attacking and killing them. And this is the reason why they loaded up and they left the land and went down into Egypt uh, to do that. And Jeremiah prophesied to them that if they stayed in the land, they would be safe. They didn't have to worry about Nebuchadnezzar, but that if they went down to Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar would be coming to destroy Egypt soon, and they would be destroyed along with them. And so that's what brought us to this point uh, where we're at. We're still in those events of where um, Jeremiah and the remnant have gone down into Egypt. It's not looking good, and there's still turmoil with Nebuchadnezzar that's been perpetrated by certain Jews wanting to maintain the fight. So we're here now at chapter 46, and Jeremiah and, and Baruch, they're bringing the book to a conclusion. And the way they've decided to do this is, and Isaiah the prophet, he did this same thing. Isaiah the prophet has a section of his book called the Oracles of, where Isaiah made an oracle to each individual nation that was in the area. And what we're going to hear is Jeremiah is going to do the same thing. He's going to make a prophecy, he's going to share a prophecy with all of the surrounding nations that are around Israel and those that are involved. And the first one that he's going to give in one of these oracles, one of these words, is to Egypt, where he's now in Egypt with the remnant, and he's basically prophesying what's going to be happening to them as a nation. And as we go into these next few chapters, you'll see other nations he's going to cite. Now, with that said... Let's see what he has to say about Egypt. Begin with me in chapter 46, at verse 1. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, concerning the nations. To Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the Euphrates River at Cheramish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Joachim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, now, you'll notice if you have your Bible that suddenly the text will indent. And most Bibles print it this way. It's going to indent. And the reason is that you see text like this. It is in a special form of writing in the Hebrew. 
It's almost poetic. Uh, and it's almost special prose, meaning uh, it's just not a narrative and just repeating and sharing information. That as you read it in the Hebrew, there's a kind of flow that comes in the Hebrew uh, that comes with it. So it's almost done in a in a uh, like a lyric of a song or the the words of a poem. It, it, it in other words, there's a flow in the Hebrew as you read it. So that's the way he gives these prophecies. And by the way, this is a very effective way of communicating with people. Uh, just stop and think for a moment. Um, the number of people, folks like you, younger people and so forth, how they will retain and they will remember the words of songs. That when a song comes in and has a particular message, they will remember the lyrics so that they can sing along with it. And that's the technique here. He's putting it in this form so that it actually induces the reader to actually take it in and potentially memorize it. And so they can repeat the phrases, they can repeat the verses back. Just like I see people who will hear some popular song come on the radio, which quite honestly for me is the first time I've ever heard the song, and they'll be sitting there singing the song. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you must have heard this song a lot of times, you know, to have committed. Actually, they haven't heard it that many times. It's that the song penetrated and the words penetrated and, and they're, they're in their mind and they're able to repeat them back uh, to a great extent uh, for it. And so that's the technique that sometimes the prophets will use. And this is where Jeremiah is going to do this pretty consistently on these prophecies of the nations. With that introduction, let's see what he had to say. Verse 3. Line up the shield and buckler and draw near for the battle. Harness the horses, mount the steeds, take your stand with helmets on, polish the spears, put on the scale armor. Why have I seen it? They are terrified. They are drawing back. Their mighty men are defeated. They have taken refuge in flight without facing back. Terror is on every side, declares the Lord. Let not the swift man flee, nor the mighty man escape. In the north, beside the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is this that rises like the Nile, like the rivers of whose waters surge about? Egypt rises up like the Nile, even like the rivers whose the waters surge about. And he said, I will rise and cover that land. I will surely destroy the city and its inhabitants. Go up, you horses, and drive madly, you chariots, that the mighty men may march forward. Ethiopia and Put that handle the shield, and Lydians and that handle and bend the bow. For that day belongs to the Lord, God of hosts, a day of vengeance, so as to avenge himself of his foes, and the sword will devour and be satiated, and drink its full of their blood. For there will be a slaughter for the Lord God of hosts in the land of the north by the river Euphrates, Go up to Gilead and obtain balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain have you multiplied remedies. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame. The earth is full of your cry of distress. For one warrior has stumbled over another, and both of them have fallen down together. The, uh, before I go any further, let me make sure you, that you understand tactically where was Egypt at that time. 
So Jeremiah and the Remen have gone down to Egypt, and they think that it's a safe place because Egypt not only has their military forces there in Egypt, but they've gone out and they've ventured out to northern areas. In fact, it was the Egyptians that basically defeated all of the Hittites, and the Hittites are no more. And they were covering those regions where the Hittites used to be. They had forces out there, military forces stationed in different places. And Jeremiah is saying, even though you have military forces uh, here and stationed in other places, let me tell you what's going to happen to them. You know, those military forces you have out in those other northern lands, they're going to be slaughtered. You're going to lose that ground. And it's going to be the beginning of your demise. They're going to wipe those forces out and then come get you. And that whereas you would think that if there was a mighty nation and they had chariots and spears and many, many soldiers, and they even held other outposts and other places outside of their nation in their control, you would think normally that this is a very strong military power, quite capable of taking care of themselves. But here's Jeremiah saying, you know, all those places where you're at, they're all going to be slaughtered. And sure enough, the Babylonians did. They did slaughter them historically. That's what is being spoken by Jeremiah to Egypt. Verse 13, this is the message which the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, the prophet, about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to smite the land of Egypt. Because the Babylonians did come down and burn Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdal, that's a city in Egypt, proclaim also in Memphis and Tafahez, say, take your stand, Get yourself ready, for the sword has devoured those around you. All those outposts they had outside the country, they're gone. It's just you now. Why have your mighty ones become prostrate? They do not stand because the Lord has thrust them down. They have repeatedly stumbled. Indeed, they have fallen one against another. Then they have said, get up and let us go back to our own people in our native land, away from the sword of the oppressor. They cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a big noise. He has let the appointed time pass. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely one shall come who looms up like Tabor uh, among the mountains or like Carmel by the sea. Those are specific mountains in the northern part of Israel. Make your baggage ready for exile, O daughters dwelling in Egypt, for Memphis has become a desolation. It even will be burned down and hereft of inhabitants. Egypt is a pretty heifer, but a horsefly is coming from the north. It is coming. Also her mercenaries in her midst are like fatted, fattened calves, for even they too have turned back and have fled together. They did not stand their ground, for the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. Its sound moves like that of a serpent, for they move on like an army and come to her as woodcutters with axes. They have cut down her forest, declares the Lord. Surely it will no more be found, even though they are now numerous as locusts and are without number. The daughter of Egypt has been put to shame given over to the power of the people of the north. Now, before I go any further, Jeremiah is now speaking to the people that are in the land of Egypt and saying, since all those outposts and all those places have been destroyed, guess what? That army is still coming. Um, I really like his word picture 
here about um, the horse fly and the horse. Um, for those of you who have never seen a horse fly, let me explain what it is to you. If you are out in the country and, and you're around farms and so forth, you'll see these occasionally. A horse fly looks just like a regular house fly, except that it's, I don't know, proportionally like five or ten times bigger than a normal horse fly. And you know how, you know, when a fly lands on you, especially when it's about to rain, how that sucker will bite you. And it, <laughs> if you have a horse fly land on you and bite you, you will never forget the experience. Never. A horse fly can land on the butt of a horse, bite him, and even the horse will react violently to what's taking place. And he uses the word picture of the instantaneous shock and hurt, harm, to explain when the Babylonians come, they're going to land on you like a horse fly, and they're going to bite you, and it will change your life forever. You know, and basically is saying it's going to bring about their demise uh, from that. They themselves would become exiles, you know, carrying away their possessions into other places. Verse 25, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, Behold, I'm going to punish Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh and Egypt along with their gods and their kings, even Pharaoh and those who trust in him. And I shall give them over to the power of those who are seeking their lives even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his officers. Afterwards, however, it will be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. That's interesting. He says the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to wipe you out. They will leave, and then you'll be able to have your country back. And to this day, there still is an Egypt, even though the Babylonians came down and destroyed them. And he's saying that's... And by the way, the reason why this is going to happen is because the Lord, the God of Israel, has decided to do this. Now, that's kind of interesting. Um, here's Jeremiah coming down. I'm sure the Egyptians absolutely loved the word that this Hebrew prophet was coming down and explaining how the Hebrew God is going to come down and bring their enemies against them and wipe them out. Um, and by the way, take down their gods, burn their temples, burn their major cities. And so I'm sure the Egyptians loved hearing Jeremiah say that. Actually, I don't think they loved it at all. And, and by the way, the remnant of Judah, which had sought refuge in Egypt, they didn't like that prophecy either because they were hoping that Egypt would protect them. And Jeremiah is saying that Egypt will not be a protection. Um, verse 27 but as for you, O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For see, I'm going to save you from afar, and your descendants from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and be undisturbed and secure, with no one making them tremble. O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, declares the Lord. For I am with you, for I shall make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you. Yet I shall not make a full end of you but I shall correct you properly and by no means leave you unpunished. The two verses that I just read to you don't have to do with the situation where Jeremiah was in at the time. Those two verses are spoken to the remnant of Israel that has been exiled into all the nations. Matter of fact, any time you see in the scripture this phrase, 
I'm going to save you from afar. Where you see the expression afar, he's not talking about the nation where he's at. He's talking about nations out in the world. And the, the reason why we use the term afar is because at that time you're going to be exiled in the nations we don't even know the names of. You will be in places that your fathers have never heard of. And to this day, you know, here we are in the middle of the United States of America. Let me go ahead and just tell you this. Jeremiah never heard of the United States of America and never had any idea there would ever be a nation like this at the end of the ages. Nor did Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. So they referred to us as being afar. And they knew that the remnant of Israel uh, that, that was like that segment that had left the land here with the Babylonian conflict and with Egypt, they knew that, that, that in future generations that um, the Jews and the house of Israel, all of the people of Israel, they would be scattered into all the nations of the world. They, they would have to have fleed from enemies who come to do harm to all of them. And he's saying to all of the afar remnant, the remnant that's scattered in the world, that, remember this, I am the Lord and I will deliver you out of that place. I'm telling you right now, you can take these verses and you can teach these side by side with the whole teaching of the Great Tribulation. These verses match the same verses that Moses gave us in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. Though your outcasts are in nations that are scattered afar and way out and so forth, yet from there will I bring you back and yet from there will I deliver you. And Jeremiah is making the same promise that Moses made and other prophets make of, a, of the teaching we call at the end of the ages the greater exodus, in which that Ezekiel said, there's a day coming when the exile will end, and there's a specific event where that happens, and then God will pour out his spirit on all mankind, pour out his spirit on the whole house of Israel, and he will gather up and he will be bringing his remnant back to the land. The ultimate of it is when the Messiah returns, he gathers us all up together, and we go to Jerusalem together. Now, here we are still scattered in all the nations, and some are wondering, well, with all of the things going on in the world, what will happen to us? If you're part of the remnant of Israel, you believe in the God of Israel, you have an incredible, wonderful promise given to you by the prophet Jeremiah. And it's keyed off of this story of the remnant of Judah escaping from Nebuchadnezzar going down into Egypt. It's keyed off of that. But it is a future prophecy to the end of the ages. So mark in your Bibles, verse 27, 28, this is about you. So going to the title of our teaching here, the expectations of Jeremiah, it is Jeremiah's expectation that at the end of the ages, all of the remnant of Israel will be coming from wherever afar they are and that they will be delivered regardless of what the enemies of Israel are doing. And he will bring them back. All right, now turning to chapter 47, we're going to speak to another group. Chapter 47, verse 1. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh conquered Gaza. Now, 
the area of Gaza, which we know about in, in modern times, is a little, little strip that's between Egypt and Israel along the Mediterranean coast. It's in the southern part of that area, but it's right on the border between Egypt and Israel. And the Philistines are the people who used to dwell there. They are the people who came there. And so he's prophesying to these Philistines in that region. He said, I have a word for you. He goes on to say, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, Behold, waters are going to rise from the north and becoming an overflowing torrent and overflow the land in all its fullness and the city and who live in it. And the men will cry out and every inhabitant of the land will wail because the noise of the galloping hooves of his stallions, the tumult of his chariots and the rumbling of his wheels, the fathers have turned back to their children because of the limpness of their hands which means basically they'll, they'll, they'll run and weak and they'll just go back and run to their children. On account of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every ally that is left, for the Lord is going to destroy the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Camp Tor. Um, baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon has been ruined, a remnant of their valley. How long will you gash yourself? Ah, sword of the Lord, how long will you not be quiet? Withdraw into the, your sheath um, and be at rest and stay still. How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it an order against Ashkelon, against the seacoast? There he has assigned it. The Philistines were all along the Mediterranean course. Their, their primary place was in the zone we call Gaza, but it reached all the way up the Mediterranean coast. Um, by the way, just historically, we don't have any Philistines anymore. Did you know that? God wiped them out. There are no more of the Amorites, you know, that used to live there. In fact, he used Israel when they came out of Egypt, wiped them out. Uh, the Amorites are no more. All of those peoples that are in there. Now, Palestinians, I want to remind you, are not ancient Philistines. Palestinians are the ancient descendants of Esau, okay? They're not the Philistines. The Philistines got wiped. God eventually wiped them out. And so Palestinians are actually living in ancient Philistine lands. And Philistine means invaders. These were peoples who came from elsewhere in the Mediterranean Sea. Some are saying from Greece or other, maybe Turkey or other nations, and they came as invaders to the land, and they occupied that land along the coast, and Jeremiah is prophesying uh, there's a day coming when they're not going to be around anymore. And all the cities that they occupy, they will not be there anymore. And so that was the prophecy he said to the Philistines. Chapter 48, let's see what else he has to say. Concerning Moab, where's Moab? That's Jordan, what we call Jordan today. It's east of Jerusalem across the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, woe to Nebo. Nebo is a mountain in that land, for it has been destroyed. Wow, what an interesting statement. A whole mountain has been destroyed. Um, and he rattles off another name I have difficulty saying here, Kirath Thame. Um, has been put to shame. It has been captured. The lofty stronghold 
has been put to shame and shattered. Actually, part of the reason why he's saying the mountain is destroyed because the troops would get on the high ground uh, to defend themselves, but they all get wiped out even though they're on the high ground. <clears throat> there is praise for Noab no longer. In Heshvan, they have devised calamity against her. Come and let us cut her off from being a nation. You too, madmen, will be silenced. The sword will follow after you. The sound of outcry from Horonaim. Devastation and great destruction. Moab is broken. Her little ones have sounded out a cry of distress, for by the ascent of Luhith, uh, they will ascend with continual weeping, for at the descent of Horonaim, they have heard the anguish cry of destruction. Flee, save your lives, that you may be like a juniper in the wilderness. For because of your trust in your achievements and your treasures, even you yourself will be captured. And Hamosh will go off into exile, and together with his priests and his princes and his destroyer will come to every city so that no city will escape. The valley also will be ruined. The plateau will be destroyed. And the Lord has said, give wings to Moab, for she will flee away and her cities will become a desolation. Without inhabitants in them, cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently. And cursed be the one who restrains his sword from blood. Moab has been at ease since his youth. He also has been undisturbed on his, on his lees. Uh, neither has he been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his favor, and his aroma has not changed. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send to him those who tip the vessels, and they will tip him over, and they will empty his vessels and shatter his jars. And Moab will be ashamed of Shemoth. At the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. How can you say we are mighty warders and men valiant for battle? Moab has been destroyed. And the men have gone up to its cities. His choicest young men have gone down to the slaughter, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. The disaster of Moab will soon come, and his calamity has swiftly hastened. Mourn for him, all you who live around him, even all you who know his name. Say, how has the mighty scepter been broken, a staff of splendor? Come down from your glory and sit on the parched ground, O daughter dwelling in Divan. For the destroyer of Moab has come up against you. He has ruined your strongholds. Stand by the road and keep watch, O inhabitant of Arar. Ask him who flees and her who escapes and say, What has happened? Moab has been put to shame, for it has been shattered. Wail and cry out, declare by Arnon, that Moab has been destroyed. Judgment has also come upon the plain, upon Halan, Yavayasa, um, and against uh, another name I'm not going to say. And against, in the next three verses, a bunch of names I'm not going to say. The horn of Moab has been cut off, and his arm is broken, declares the Lord. Make him drink, um, make him drunk, for he has become arrogant toward the Lord, so Moab will wallow in his vomit. And he will also become a laughing stock. Now, it was, it was, was not Israel a laughing stock for you? 
or was he caught among thieves? For each time you speak about him, you shake your head in scorn. Leave the cities and dwell among the crags, O inhabitants of Moab, and be like the doves that nest beyond the mouth of the chasm. We have heard the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, and his self-exaltation. I know his fury, declares the Lord, but it is futile. His idle boasts have accomplished nothing. Therefore, I shall wail for Moab, and, um, and even for all of Moab shall I cry out. I will moan for the men of Kirhereres uh, more than weeping for Yazer. I will... We, I shall weep for you, O vine of Simma. The tendrils stretched across the sea, the reach of the Sea of Yazer, until your summer fruits and your grape harvest the destroyer has destroyed. So gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field, even from the land of Moab, and I have made the vine to cease from wine presses. No one will tread there with shouting. The shouting Will, be, will not be shouts of joy. For the outcry of Heshbon and even Elel, even to the Javar, uh, you have um, raised their voice from Zoar even to Hornaim and to another place. And for even the waters of Nimrim will become desolate, and I shall make an end of Moab, declares the Lord, the one who offers sacrifice on the high place, and this one who burns in incense to his gods. Now, let me take a stop here for a moment. I, I wanted to get all of that read to you because let's, let's analyze what we just heard. Basically, Jeremiah has, gone, has gotten his map out and he's gone through. Moab at the time, see, was very proud. They felt that they were a self-contained nation and they looked around at all their neighbors and they kind of looked down on them. And because Moab's physical position, they were never, shall we say, a conflict zone. There was always conflicts going through other places. Israel, for sure, was a conflict zone because it was a major transportation route from north to south, from, from up in the northern countries down into Egypt and so forth. You went through Israel every time along the coast. They were a conflict zone where peoples would come in and out. But Moab is off to the east. There's no major trail. There's no major path that ever caused any nations to... If you went through Moab, you were going to Moab. You weren't going someplace else. There wasn't anybody else to go after that. Uh, and they had uh, deserts and so forth of Arabia off to the south. There was wilderness off into the east. And you, until you get over to the Euphrates River and that area, you didn't have civilization. But they did have a kind of a, a luscious land because coming down the Jordan Valley, they had, you know, just like Israel does today, they could grow vineyards and they could grow fruit and they, they had access to high quality foods along that whole bank of the Jordan River. And then they had plateaus and it was an ideal location for pastures and for flocks and for cattle and other agricultural kinds of things. It was a great land in the north part to grow grain. It, there was just a lot of great things about that territory and that land. And, and so they got haughty about it. You know, their cities got built up. They were living in luxury. They were just staying out of the conflicts. And as they said, uh, you know, Jeremiah said, 
you, you laughed at Israel when they went through their calamities. You, you thought they were a laughing stock. And he uses that kind of as against, you're, you're so haughty and so full of pride. I have news for you. God's going to come back and humble you, um, you know, for that. Now, the, the second thing I want you to take note of, if you go back and reread this a little bit, there's something that Jeremiah does here, which is a very profound thing that a lot of prophets will do. And you need to take note of it, especially when it comes time for you to attempt to interpret other prophecies, especially when it comes time to understand and interpret prophecies at the end of the age. And here's what it is. The prophet is prophesying to you about what will happen and what you will see in the aftermath. They're not prophesying and saying, <clears throat> well, this is what's going to happen to you. They assume that what is going to happen to you has already happened. And then they explain to you what will be the result of when that prophecy hits. Now, logic tells you, and that's the reason why we, we don't seem to process this very much. If, he, if I tell you, for example, that you will not have uh, adequate money on your trip to be able to pay for your hotel bill or be able to pay for your um, credit card with your for your rental car and you won't have enough money to be able to go and buy yourself a sandwich and I start describing all these impacts on you and and then at the end I say by the way your wallet's gonna be stolen but I could explain the profundity of what happens to you when your wallet gets stolen by telling you about the rental car ain't going to work for you, the hotel bill's not going to work for you, the restaurant's not going to work for you. And the reason is because you don't have your wallet and you don't have your credit cards anymore. So the prophets do that. And I'm telling you, they do that same thing when it comes to end time prophecies, especially when you get into the judgments. Um, they don't necessarily tell you how the judgment is going to be carried out, how it's going to be done, but they'll tell you what the result of the judgment is. Let me give you a case in point. Um, in the book of Revelation, there's a couple of judgments in which it says that a third of the sun is darkened. Okay, a third of the sun is going to be darkened. Let me go ahead and ask the question, how in the world is that going to happen? How do you get a third of the atmosphere to be darkened with clouds to where the sun can't shine. It doesn't tell you how it will happen. Now, providentially, let's ask the question providentially, how do we think such a thing could happen? Well, I can tell you the physical scientists say all you have to do is set off a bunch of volcanoes. You get a whole ring of volcanoes and they spew stuff, it'll... it'll follow one of the three major air currents in our upper atmosphere. And if you get enough debris up in one of those, it will darken a third of the earth. And interesting, we have three of these major air currents around the globe. All you got to do is get a bunch of volcanoes in one area, put enough debris up, and it will darken that. Now, how dark will it be? Well, we don't know. It could, if it, if it took 50% of the light away, would you say it darkened the sun? Maybe it's not total darkness, but it's just the effect. 
And the prophecy is telling you the end result. It's not telling you how it will happen. It's not telling you the degree that it will happen. It's just telling you the end effect. The prophets do that here. And Jeremiah is explaining the end effect to these nations. He's not necessarily telling them exactly how it will be done. He's not telling them that the Babylonians are going to come and carry out a campaign to hit this city, then this city, then this city, then this city. It's telling you all the cities will be affected. But it's not telling you how the enemy will do it. And um, when we go and read these prophecies, I want you to encourage you to step back and reflect about it. Is He's not actually prophesying directly. He's telling you what the aftermath will be of when the Lord does what the Lord's going to do. And if you can learn that principle and read the prophecies and, and, and rightly divide the word, uh, it's going to be very helpful for you when you see the end time prophecies, because a lot of them are expressed in that very method and manner. All right, so let's now turn back to verse 36. Therefore my heart wails for Moab like flutes. My heart also wails like flutes for the men of Kerheres. Therefore they have lost the abundance it produced. For every head is bald, every beard cut short, there are gashes on all the hands and sackcloth on the loins. On all of the housetops of Moab and in the streets, there is lamentation everywhere. For I have broken Moab like an undesirable vessel, declares the Lord. How shattered it is. How they have wailed. How Moab has turned his back. He is ashamed. So Moab will become a laughingstock and an object of terror to all around her. Before I go any further, I want to give you a comment. Do you know how archaeologists, they go out and um, they're digging around in where the civilization, and they're always interested in the shards of pots. They're looking for pots and shards of pots. Why, why so? Well, because that's kind of technically the dating of things that happened there. Because when an enemy would come in and wipe you out, there were two things that they would do. First of all, they would burn your city down, and all of the roofs of the houses made with stone still had burnable material. They'd burn your city down. They would take every pot they could find, and they would break it, because pots was what made, you know, for carrying of water, storage of food, uh, where you kept your treasures, uh, you know, and so forth. You would make pots as containers. That was, you know, the Rubbermaid you know, of our day was their pots. And so the enemy, one of the ways to disturb that community and ruin that community was to go in and break all of their pots. So archaeologists, when we go uh, looking at a history of a particular region, every time they find a pot shard, they want it because that's part of the evidence of when there was a conflict there and if they can see burn marks and carbon along with it, they know there was a fire that was involved, and they can date the pot to a certain extent and then go back into history and say, oh, this is the conflict. This is when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed here. This is at that time frame. And, and basically, they're going back archaeologically and proving the history uh, of what actually transpired. And the shards of pots is one of the primary pieces of evidence that they use for it. Here's Jeremiah saying, here's what's going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar's going to come in, he's going to break every one of your pots. and going to turn them into rubble. 
and destroy all your vessels there for it. Verse 40, for thus says the Lord, behold, one will fly like an eagle and spread out his wings against Moab. Kirioth has been captured and the strongholds have been seized. So the hearts of the mighty men of Moab in that day will be like the heart of a woman in labor. Wow. What a picture that is. You know, you of course know that women in labor are kind of preoccupied with giving birth and are in travail. And can you imagine men doing something similar um, from it? And Moab will be destroyed from being a people because he has become arrogant toward the Lord. Terror, pit, and snare are coming upon you, O inhabitant Moab, declares the Lord. The one who flees from the terror will fall into the pit, and the one who climbs up out of the pit will be caught in the snare. And I will bring upon her, even upon Moab, the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the shadow of Heshbon, the fugitives stand without strength, for a file has gone forth from Heshbon and flame from the midst of Sihon, and has devoured the forehead of Moab and the scalps of the riotous rebels. Woe to you, Moab! The people of Hamosh have perished, for your sons have been taken away captive, your daughters are in captivity. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord, thus far the judgment of Moab. Isn't that interesting? He said Egypt would get wiped out by Nebuchadnezzar, but Egypt would remain in the future. He said that Moab would get destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, but in the end, Moab will exist. By the way, Jordan still exists today. And the land of Jordan and the people uh, are still there, just as Jeremiah said. In the latter days, they would still be there. All right, chapter 49 Concerning the sons of Ammon, now this is interesting because he talked about Moab, which is in the land of Jordan, but he also speaks of the sons of Ammon. Ammon was a segment of people that was in the land of, of uh, Jordan. Have you ever heard of the city Ammon, Jordan? Central Jordan. That's where those people were at. They were in that, and, they, and the city is named after that people that used to live there. Thus says the Lord, does Israel have no sons, or has he no heirs? Why then has Malcolm taken possession of God, and the people settled in its cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I shall cause a trumpet blast of war to be heard against Ravah and the sons of Ammon, and it will come, and it will become a desolate heap, and her towns shall be set on fire. Then Israel will take possession of his possessors. Wail, O Heshbon, for I has been destroyed. Cry out, O daughters of Ravah. Uh, gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, and rush back and force into the walls, for Malcolm uh, will go into exile. Therefore, together with his priests and his princes. How boastful you are about the valleys. Your valley is flowing away, O backsliding daughter, who trusts in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I'm going to bring terror upon you, declares the Lord God of hosts, from all directions around you, and each of you will be driven out headlong. Woe to with no one to gather the fugitives together, but afterward I will restore the fortunes of Ammon, 
declares the Lord. And to this day, as Jeremiah said, the fortunes of Ammon were maintained, and we still have an Ammon Jordan. It didn't get completely destroyed where nobody remembers it. One of the things that I want you to take note of here is Jeremiah talks about this judgment that would come on the surrounding nations, but then he says the Lord will restore them. Now, I want you to take note of something. If God is that merciful that he recognizes the inhabitants of the land, the neighbors of Israel, to the extent that he can punish them, he can take them to task, and yet at the same time, he'll restore their fortunes in the end. And he uses the same exact language when he's talking about Israel. Where do we get the idea that in the church that Israel was completely destroyed and was never supposed to be again? And by the way, that was the belief of the church up until this last century. In fact, the World Council of Churches when Israel was trying to become a nation in 1948, were absolutely opposed to it because they had gone around teaching for centuries that Israel would be no more. But God said Israel would be, and by the way, God also said that there would be an Egypt too, and there would be a land of Jordan and even a group of people that live in the land of Jordan, and they still exist today, and Israel still exists today. I'm telling you, what you just heard from Jeremiah is just as relevant today as it was in the day he spoke it. It's just as relevant today. The words of Jeremiah are, are true today as to what we have here. That's the reason why I encourage you, you need to know what Jeremiah really has to say because he has said some important things about us. And we need to know about those things. Let us not proceed forward and be ignorant of what the prophet has said concerning us. <clears throat> Let us not make the mistake that Israel has made in the past. Verse 7. Concerning Edom. Now let's talk about that. Who is Edom? That's another segment of people in the land we call Jordan today. It's the southern part of Jordan, especially along the area of the Dead Sea and along the area of the Aravah Valley, the, the, the desert that's in that area, all the way down to Aqaba, all the way down to Elot, Israel, down to where um, the uh, uh, Gulf of Aqaba comes up. So we're talking about the very southern strip of the land of Jordan. Ammon is in the middle. Uh, the others, that Moabites, they were in the north. These guys, Edom, they were down to the south. These are different peoples within the land of what we call Jordan. So he's speaking to them. And by the way, Edom, uh, you know, if you recall, that who's, who's, that, uh, who's that from? Edom, what does Edom mean? It means red. They're from Esau. This is where the ancient Palestinians come from. They're Edomites. And they are, have, have occupied now a, a lot of the Middle East and been authorized in this last generation by the Egyptians, by other nations, uh, to occupy the West Bank of Israel. They moved into those regions where they really belong down in Edom. If you, if you go with ancient history, everybody else gets to be in their place, but they've decided to come and live in the mountains of Israel, the West Bank. And that's part of the conflict today between Israel and the Palestinians, is we have a bunch of Edomites that are in the land of Israel. 
from it. Let's see what uh, Jeremiah has to say about them. Concerning Edom, the Lord says, thus says the Lord of hosts, is there no longer any wisdom in Timon? Has good counsel been lost to the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? Flee away, turn back, dwell in the depths, O um, inhabitants of Dedan. Dedan is down in Arabia. It's in the southern, even uh, the area of the bottom of Jordan is on the border of, of, of Saudi Arabia, and Dedan was in Arabia. <clears throat> For I will bring disaster, the disaster of Esau upon him at the time I punish him. He's talking about Edom. Now he calls him Esau. Okay, this is where Esau used to be. If grapes gather, uh, gatherers come to, came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, they would only destroy until they had enough. But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places so that he will not be able to conceal himself. His offspring have been destroyed along with his relatives and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your orphans behind. I will keep them alive. And let your widows trust in me. For thus says the Lord, Behold, those who were not sentenced to drink the cup will certainly drink it, and are the one who will be completely and and are you the one that will be completely acquitted? You will not be acquitted, but you will certainly drink it. For I have sworn to myself, declares the Lord, that Basra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, and a curse, and all its cities will become a perpetual ruins. I've heard a message from the Lord, and an envy is sent among the nations, saying, Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. For behold, I have made you small like the nations despised among men. As for the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you, of you and you who live in the depth clefts of the rock, who occupy the heights of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord, and Edom will become an object of horror, and everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss at all of its wounds, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, says the Lord. No one will live there, nor will the Son of Man reside in it. Behold, no one will come up. Uh, one will come up as a lion, from the thickets of Jordan and make a perennial watered wasteland. For in an instant I shall make him run away from it, and whoever is chosen I shall point over it. And who is like me, and who will summon me into court? And, the, and who then is the shepherd who can stand against me? Before I go any further, I want you to take note of he speaks to a particular place called Basra. That's a part of Edom, ancient Edom. In fact, it's one of the locations. And I want you to listen to these words again. Verse 14, again. I have heard a message from the Lord. Now, wait a minute. He is giving a message from the Lord. If you go back to verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. Now he's saying, I've heard another message from the Lord in the midst of giving you the message of the Lord. And it goes on to say this. That's what marks these verses as different from the others. And an envoy is sent among the nations saying, this is to the nations, not just to Edom. 
Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. For behold, I have made you small among the nations, despised among men. And as for the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. Oh, you live in the clefts of the rock who occupy the heights of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. He's really making a very profound statement about that particular lesson. He's, I'm, I have another message. I'm giving you this message from the Lord, but I have another message from the Lord about this. And he's talking about the location. There's something special about that location. Let me tell you what it is. Um, if you study the book of Revelation and you study about the, um, the battle of Armageddon, a lot of people who don't really read it very closely, they think this great battle between God and the devil and the Antichrist at the end of the age, the day of the Lord stuff, that the battle is in the valley of, or the, the mountain of Armageddon. It's, it's up in the Jezreel Valley and there's a mountain up there, Megiddo. And so Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, which was a great fortress for Solomon, we, the, the, <clears throat> the common way to say that is we say Armageddon. What we're really saying in the Hebrew is Har Megiddo, but we say Armageddon. And there's the belief, oh yeah, that's that's where they're going to gather, and that's where God, that's where the day of the Lord is going to hit, and so forth. Actually, that's not correct. <clears throat> the prophecy says that they're going to gather at Armageddon. But then the prophecy says the actual battle when God comes back and the Messiah actually defeats his enemies, it's at Basra. It's in Edom. <coughs> and a lot of people don't realize, you know, when the Messiah talks about his vestures being dipped in blood, where have you come from? What has been done? He says, oh, I've been to Basra. And that's what, <clears throat> that is what Jeremiah is talking about here. Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. Those words are describing the prophecy at the end of they will gather in Armageddon and they will fight the battle in Basra. Isn't that interesting what Jeremiah had to say? He, every once in a while he just gives you a little piece that fits into the scenario about the end of the ages. I love it. But the ability to be able to see it, I'm telling you, you got to understand what Jeremiah is really doing here, how the Lord is using him. And I want you to take note, I have heard a message from the Lord. The language that is here, that you, in the clefts of the rock, and being deceived and so forth, I want you to, you can do a cross parallel. Take the verses, verse 15, verse 16, and you can go to the book of Obadiah. And the entire book of Obadiah is explaining those two verses. If you read the book of Obadiah, it's the prophecy against Edom. And he repeats these words that Jeremiah speaks. Only gives much more detail. It's really, Obadiah is a fascinating book to read in parallel with the book of Jeremiah here in this place. All right. Oh, my goodness, I think I've run out of time. So I guess that's going to be the end of our study for this episode, and we will take up our study again um, 
on the next program. Shalom, everyone. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom.